Hey, welcome to another edition of Old School Guns. This is episode number 66. And uh, here we are in the throes of the pandemic. And I hate to say I told you so, but last podcast I said, Stalag Nation, here it comes. And now you see that there are open protests in a lot of places where these governors have overreached their authority. I mean, they've closed things they have no right to close. They're restricting movement that they have no right to restrict. They're doing all kinds of things, and now they're being called on the carpet on it. I hope that knucklehead up in Michigan loses her job over it. Uh, same thing with the one here in Kansas. Uh, she, she definitely needs to go. She only got in over a fluke, into office on a fluke anyway. But, but she needs to go too. Um, the bottom line is we do not live in a dictatorship where these people can do it, and they are, they are drunk with this power. They are absolutely just high on on uh, being able to tell people what to do, what to go. And, you know, I pointed it out that even in the tiny little town I live in, a sleepy, quiet little place, the, the police have drones now that they're flying over, I guess, to make sure that uh, people aren't surreptitiously meeting in, in backyards or holding uh, illegal barbecues or something. I guess that's what it is. But um, I have to tell you that it's a, uh, a definite problem and, you know, it's, they've completely overreached. They've completely overreached. And there's just, you know, you can look through the news and you can see just one egregious example after another of people who have been, you know, their rights are just being stomped on and stomped on. And if they're willing to do this in a pandemic, imagine what they will do if they think they have a legislative mandate to do what they want to do. If they win an election and get a mandate, you know, you can you can pretty much kiss your gun and other rights goodbye. <clears throat> so that, that's kind of the, the wrap-up for the Stalag Society. Um, you know, the and it's especially the liberal governors. They love telling people what to do, how you're going to do it, how you're going to live, what's going to happen, and uh, uh, that's that's kind of the way that all works. And uh, um, you know that that's the people they are. You know, <laughs> when people show you who they are, believe them. Definitely believe them. Okay, well we're gonna. You know, I feel actually kind of sorry for some of the content creators because they can't really get a lot of good stuff to show. And a lot of good stuff to uh, um, to share with us, so they're they're doing a good job, and I don't think they deserve any 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 of the usual criticisms and beatings that I hand out to them this week. But uh, you know, suffice it to say that you know YouTube is is something that when people have a lot of time on their hands, and face it, a lot of people working from home have time on their hands. You're not getting ready to go to work, you're not commuting, and then, you know, the work has slowed down. So even if you're working from home, it may not be at the same pace that it was when you were in the office or, or out doing something else. So, you know, it's uh, people have time on their hands and they're watching this stuff, watching all this content. And I know that these guys are scrambling to put stuff up. And, you know, I, I appreciate that. I think that's actually a good thing. That's uh, one of the things where people kind of stick together a little bit and everybody can kind of enjoy the stuff. Same thing with the podcast too. Boy, if you think that there's extra time 
you know, I, I consume some, but, you know, when it comes to getting a chunk of time to put one of these together, um, it's very hard. So I wind up doing it in pieces. And uh, do forgive my gravelly voice because uh, we do have the, the usual amount of pollen and all the other good stuff in the air, which, which kind of causes me to get, get gravelly. I noticed it when I was listening to the recording of the last podcast. Uh, starting to get a little gravelly then, so I'll probably get a little gravelly in this one. And so one of the things I wanted to talk about was something that uh, it's been bugging me for a long, long, long time. And it's one of those things that kind of takes a chunk of, of time to talk about. And it is fakes. If you're in the collecting of guns, if you're in the collecting of military, whatever, whatever type it is, I don't think I have to tell you that, you know, fakes have just about ruined some aspects of that. Uh, the first thing that got ruined... Well, I, let me say, if you go way back in history, you know, they've always been faking the World War II German stuff. Even at the end of the war, and I know because I have one of these, the, um, to make a very long story short, a family friend gave us a knife that he'd gotten in Germany when, you know, the war ended and, and uh, he was still in, in Germany and came back. Well, he gave us a, a Hitler Jugend knife. You know, this was years after the war, some 10, 15 years. And uh, so I, I re I'd always just kind of had it off to the side. Well, it was in really good shape. So I looked up the markings and come to find out that it was not an actual used Hitler Jugend knife. What it actually is is one that was assembled from spare parts they had left over, and they used to sell these to GIs who wanted a cool bring-back souvenir. So it's not like this was, you know, captured from the bodyguards of Hermann Goering or anything. This was something that, you know, even at the end of the war, the market for stuff was there, and, and people were putting this together. If you worked in the knife factory, and you were basically kind of without a job and penniless, and you had all these knife parts... And I mean, this looks the real deal, too. It's got the swastika, the whole nine yards. Um, people put that together, and it's like, hey, it's good to go. It is It is totally good to go. It, looks, it is authentic. It is made out of the parts, but it does have a marking on it that, that kind of lets the advanced collector know. Now, how many of these have been bought and sold over the years as the, quote, real thing? Hey, I, I don't know. But it's an example that faking has been out there for a very, very long time. But uh, jump up in time to the uh, the very fast, fast and heady times of the 1990s when the CMP was getting underway and it was selling M1 Garands like crazy. And, you know, in those days, you could still get M1 Garands with cartouched stocks and guys were trading stocks around. And, you know, if you bought extra stocks from the CMP, which they had, uh, you would have a decent chance of getting, it was a stock that had been taken off a rifle, and it was cartouched, you know, it had all the inspector stamps, and those things changed over over time, and at different places where they made M1s, uh, you know, Winchester and Springfield, then, you know, you had kind of the, uh, the standard DOD stocks markings that were used uh, for the Korean War. But the cartouched stocks for World War II guns even though there were a lot of them around, and they eventually dried up, and then what popped up in its place? Well, there were guys who had stamps made, and they would stamp your stock to whatever you want. 
And that has become so widespread. And you can even buy the stamps. I mean, I haven't looked for a while, but you can even buy these stamps from like Gun Parts Corporation. Now, whether they're exactly the right size and you put them in the right place, that I, that I don't know about. But I know you can buy a set of these stamps and guys are buying them and stamping all kinds of stuff with these fake cartouches on stocks, which were in some case post-war commercial manufactured stock. So needless to say, this has ruined the cartouched stock market. I mean, some guys get over and, and um, you know, they're, they're not detected. There are expert collectors who can just tell by looking at a stock who made it. I am not one of those. I can't do that with an M1 stock. But uh, I can usually tell the commercial from the uh, military ones. But, you know, if somebody's out there to fake it, if you can get extra dollars, people will people will fake it. They'll put labor in to doing stuff. Now, there's a lot of aspects to faking. So, of course, faking has wrecked the U.S. military cartouched stock market. But there are some other other things that are reproductions which really don't really don't uh, cheat people and are not intended as fakes. And one of them is a reproduction leather. Okay, uh, a leather holster from World War One would be 100 years old. World War Two is going to be 70-something years old, 75 years old. A leather does not last, and it usually is one of the first things to kind of go. And a lot of times people just threw the holster away. They would keep the the pistol and throw the holster away or the you know the uh, rifle sling would eventually just go away to nothing so you know to get reproductions of these things so that your rifle could have a correct looking sling or your pistol could have a correct looking holster was completely acceptable it was also acceptable that there was a whole market starting in the 1960s with the civil war reenactors and then going into military reenactors. There's a lot of reproduction gear out there that's intended for use by by reenactors so that the original gear, which is valuable and becoming scarce and is almost impossible to find, <clears throat> that stuff kind of goes, you know, that stuff's kind of off the table and in the collector's hands. And this other stuff is in the reenactor's hands where they can, you know, run around the fields and flop on it and, and get it all muddy and everything else. So we have uh, we have some of that. We have the gear that's intended. Now a lot of some of that can get actually so used that it can pass for original stuff. Plus the fact there are enterprising reenactors who basically remove markings and things to make it look more authentic. Now that's fine for the person who does it, who knows and may have no intention of cheating anyone. But forty years from now, that may all of a sudden become. And original and people really don't know it uh, one of the stories I heard was there were a lot of visor caps uh, German army visor caps again just like the Hitler Jugend knife made out of old parts they were assembled and sold as souvenirs and guess what now you know 30 40 50 years later these things are floating around and being passed off as originals so faking has wrecked a lot of markets faking has wrecked a lot of this stuff you can find and, and this goes again goes back you can find world war ii style gi canteens marked made in japan you know that they made the the united states has this 
since World War II has had this insatiable appetite for surplus gear, especially U.S. surplus, but surplus from, from everywhere. And uh, a lot of people like it. They use it. It's usually rugged, good quality stuff. may not be the most up-to-date design, but it's, it's going to be uh, stuff that's very, very useful. People like it. People use it. People collect it. And uh, now we're at the point where they're manufacturing some of this stuff in China because there's still this insatiable market and the original stuff is just gone or dried up or drying up. Or it's only very, and when it does come onto the market, it's very, very expensive. So faking is out there. The worst part of this is probably fake parts. You know, there are a lot of fake scope mounts for German sniper rifles. And you can, you can go on and on that. The Moisen de Gant rifles now even have fake mounts and fake scopes. And, you know, they're still pretty easy to spot. But as time goes on, some of the stuff, some of that expertise is gone. And it isn't the experts they fleece with some of this stuff. A lot of times it's the new people. And... Uh, it's very, very tough, and sometimes very, very small markings can make a big difference. I'll tell you, I know one guy who's a big collector. I won't mention his name because he'd probably try to sue me, but I know a guy who's a big collector, quote-unquote. And to fill in gaps in his collection, he goes out and buys reproduction stuff. Okay, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all. However, he has marked, like, and here's one case taking a Mauser C96. Now, back in the 90s, a whole bunch of these were brought into the country from China. You know, and they were worn out. They were they're pretty much were worn out. Well, there were a couple of companies that would recondition these things. One of the companies basically bored this pist his pistol out to 9mm and then put on some of the fakey Red 9 grips and poof, all of a sudden you have a, a Mauser Red 9. Well, at the time, it's very pretty easy to tell. But this guy has, has put whatever he can into faking and aging this thing. And he also bought one of the Chinese-made, and they were made for the U.S. commercial market, the aftermarket um, uh, shoulder, shoulder stock that also doubles as a holster, and then you put it in this little leather harness. So he bought the leather harness, and, and you get that because those things just don't last, and you rarely, rarely see them except in high-end collections, and they're not really taken out and shot or used a lot. They're just, you know, kind of displayed. So he got that, and then he proceeded to get some metric stamps and proceeded to serial number the stock to match the pistol and, you know, age it and all this. Now, if you know anything about Mauser stocks, you can look, you can tell the Chinese ones right off. There's a lot of little nuances that really even a good faker can't can't quite get rid of and there's also the kind of wood on the inside where it's finished uh, where it's not finished all these things and and no faker can get it a hundred percent right to get it to pass by you know heavy scrutiny but I guarantee you when this Mauser pistol goes on the market it'll be sold with the original um, quote-unquote stock and the reason I know this is because the guy who faked it he's getting a little older now and he's convinced himself by telling himself this lie that, hey, it is original, that it is, it's, it's original. He'll sell it as original. And even though he's faked it, he'll sell it as original. I guarantee it. Because he's deluded himself into thinking that 
this is okay and that it really is original and that somehow he's deserving of the extra money this will bring. And he's done it with other things too. He's he's actually got a lot of high-end things in his collection which he has now compromised because he's mixed in these fakes. I'll tell you this right now, if you went to if his gun collection came on the market, uh, you'd have to be very very careful going through that. Very very careful because there are things in there that some of them are authentic and some of them aren't and uh, um, you know it's a lot of money involved the difference between a fake and something real can be a lot of a lot of money another example from this collection is a quote Colt Bisley quote unquote and what this is is actually an old Colt single action army frame with pretty heavy use and it's had Bisley grip, Bisley hammer, and Bisley barrel put on it. And then it's the uh, the grip frame has been force number matched. Not very well, but it was force number matched. It looks like it was hand stamped. And uh, I know this because I know when this gentleman bought this gun. And he was very disappointed in it, but he thought, well, for the price I paid, I'll keep it. And he, he, he enjoyed shooting it, and that, and that was all good. But he he force-matched the number, and now his story is, well, this was obviously sent back to the Colt factory, and they were out of Bisley, frame, or out of Bisley frames, so they, they put a single-action army frame on it. And if you know, the contours don't exactly match. There's, especially right at the grip area. So I challenged him, and I said, if this is all true, then why don't you just get a letter from Colt saying that? I said, if you have that letter, that legitimizes the gun, and it uh, essentially makes it more valuable. There's, there's, you know, it's not just your word. It's not just your story. Well, he refused to do that because he knows what the answer is. The answer is that they never did that because Colt would never do that. Especially in the first half of the 20th century where Colt was known for very, very high quality. They would never just slap something like that together. They they probably would have, if they had to do a frame replacement on something like that, they probably would have offered a discount on another gun or taken some other remedy. So, you know, the fakes are out there. The fakes are out there. I told a story about, about a German police holster. And it was clearly one of the post-war ones that has the two clips up on, you know, the back of the flap, you know, for the, the goofy little shoulder harness they made for it and all that. And, and of course, this thing is marked with a Waffenamt. And inside the flap of the holster is the manufacturer date stamp of 1973. So 1973 really is the date that this thing was made and somebody stamped a Waffenamt on it to try to fool, get just a few bucks more for it at a gun show or something else. I mean, stuff like that is all over. And it, it is put a very, very serious, very, very serious threat to the collectible military market. Uh, you know, if, if, if it costs a lot of money, you really have to do your due diligence. And you really have to pay attention to uh, what you're doing and what you're buying. Because there are people who will attempt to fleece you. I told you the story about the Marlin, uh, you know, saddle ring carbine <laughs> used by Teddy Roosevelt because they couldn't get Winchesters to go up San Juan Hill. 
or used by Annie Oakley, even though the Marlin she used was a, a rifle, a full-length rifle, and it was in twenty two caliber, you know. There, there are people who will tell you anything. Uh, one guy tried to sell me a pistol one time. Ah, this belonged to Admiral Nimitz. He used it in the Pacific. Oh, okay. Well, show me some proof. And, and the guy, well, I bought it from Ad, Admiral Nimitz's former aide, his aide-de-camp, you know, stayed in the Navy, retired as a as a captain or a, a rear admiral, I suppose. And basically he had kept this pistol because Nimitz had used it, and now, you know, he sold it. He's a very old man now, and he sold it. Well, I asked for any kind of proof. I asked, what's the guy's name? I said, I will buy the pistol if I can verify this story in any reasonable way. And, of course, there's no reasonable way. It was just, you hate to say just another 1911A1, but that's what it was. And and this guy's trying to put this story on it. And it's like, dude, no, nobody's going to pay extra for this because of this story without any kind of proof, any kind of collaboration. Uh, another another time, uh, I was I was looking at a 1917 in a gun shop. And it was $1,600 for it, which, if you follow 1917s, is about twice what they're they're going for in nice shape. So I, I did ask to look at it, then I saw the price tag, and I go, why why is this, you know, why why are you asking this price? And the guy goes, well, this one, this is one of Elmer Keith. Elmer Keith uh, basically inspected this gun. And on the, on the stock was, you know, the... He worked at the Ogden Arsenal, so it was like OG, you know, EKK or whatever, whatever his cartouche was. Well, it turns out there were two guys working there with the same initials. And you can tell Elmer Keith's because his has like a box around it, and the other guys did not. Well, this had the box around it. And I mean, on, on the surface, it would be an Elmer Keith cartouche of a 1917 rifle that he did at Ogden Arsenal when he worked there during and after World War II. The problem is, is that just like we were talking about the M1 stocks, anybody can make a stamp, take their $650 to $700 <laughs> 1917 rifle, pop that baby on it, and and all of a sudden doubled the price. And I'm I'm sitting there going, I just can't buy it. I would never even think of buying it just based on that. I mean, uh, you would you would have to, I don't know how you would be able to verify it, but you know the cartouche faking industry has wrecked rifles like this. It could be real. Elmer Keith, basically, he uh, uh, the Ogden Arsenal went and inspected all kinds of weapons during and after the war, and he cartouched them and he inspected them and and passed them. But now anybody can stamp that stuff on there, and now nobody knows. It's it's. That piece of history has been submerged in fakes and has been lost. So, you know, think about that. And, and I don't even like this business of, I don't mind if they want to sell a World War II pattern holster for a Luger or whatever. But they will put original markings on it. And, you know, some guy will soak it in, you know, a bucket of his secret sauce or whatever and make it look old. And they'll pass it off. They will pass it off. Little things like Luger tools, which, you know, you can buy $10, $12. You can buy one. They're unstamped. And they're they're really indistinguishable from the uh, German wartime ones. You know people have got to be stamping Waffen-Amped marks on those and selling the $12 tool for 75 or even more.
you just know that's happening. So be very careful. And I don't know if there's really going to be a good end to this. I think that at some point outside of the very high end stuff, I think a lot of this collectible military will be submerged in fakes and the price will commensurately reflect that. So that's what I have to say about fakes. It's, it's been, I know it's a long explanation, but I wanted to kind of get it out there because that's something that really affects collecting the collector's market. Collecting things can sometimes get very expensive if you don't know exactly what you're buying and exactly what you're looking for. Okay, we will now get to my favorite part of this podcast, which is questions and answers. And we've got some excellent questions that have been sent in by some of our friends. And uh, we've got some other things that we've run across. So uh, this, is the, this is always a part that I enjoy the most. The first one is sent in by our friend Clown Bear, our follower. And he's, it calls it the $1,200 challenge. And $1,200 is a suspicious suspicious figure because it sounds awful lot like the stimulus checks that a lot of people have been receiving so basically for a first-time gun buyer uh, what what gun or guns would you buy for twelve hundred dollars and it's got it's got some caveats in it if you buy a pistol you gotta buy a holster and and you have to buy 200 rounds of ammunition you know those, those kind of things so I always look at this and I just sit there and say somebody plops twelve hundred unaccountable dollars in your hand saying you can spend this on whatever you want and you're you're interested in guns uh, what are you gonna do and and I would say the first thing we have to do is to kind of take a step back and we have to look at a couple of things the first thing I'd look at is does the guy have any does the gun buyer and I, I say guy but it could be could be a gal does the shooter does the potential gun buyer have any shooting experience are they a person who grew up with guns and hey now that I'm out of school and I've got a steady job and I got this $1200 check I'm gonna buy some guns because the guns that I used to use as a kid or you know they belong to mom and dad and I don't have any of my own I'm gonna buy some of my own is it that person is it a person interested in hunting are they interested in self-defense are they trying to arm just themselves or are they do they is it's a husband and wife deal where um, they're both going to get into it and they both need guns for whatever purpose they've they've chosen and what I'm going to eliminate here are people who are going into a specific sport if you're going into um, sporting clays if you're going into NRA bullseye target if you're going into PRS rifle whatever whatever the shooting discipline is uh, your your equipment is going to be very very narrow comparatively speaking to stuff that is suitable for that for that particular discipline so we can kind of we can kind of expand this and say okay first time gun buyer and we can probably as an assumption say it's self-defense and then that leads us to a couple other forks in the road do they live in a city do you live in the country do you live in a small town uh, and then we start getting into well what is the threat what is the most likely threat and what is the worst possible threat and those are the those are the two things you really have to look at it's it's a simple it's basic simple and if this sounds familiar to those who've been in uniform yes it is very basic military thinking and planning very very basic what is the worst thing that can happen to me what is the most likely thing that can happen to me 
And so going from there, you have to say self-defense and you have to, if you at least accept that there's at least a modicum of shooting experience, like the person has seen guns, has fired them, maybe has fired them with, with friends, maybe grew up with some, you know, that kind of thing, has some military or perhaps, you know, security guard or police type of, of familiarization where they were issued a firearm and qualified with it, but did not own one. But whatever all that is, they have some familiarity with firearms. There's basically uh, a lot of different roads you can take. If they don't have very much familiarity and they live in kind of a rural area, you know, I, I go back on when I was a kid growing up on a cattle ranch and the most useless gun most useful, useful gun. The most useless gun we had were, were probably deer rifles because they were only good during deer season. But the most useful gun we had were 22 rifles of varying types. And of the 22 rifles that are out there today, uh, one that we had on the ranch, which which really I think was head and hands above everything, is a Ruger 1022. So for $1,200, you could certainly buy two base model Ruger 1022s husband and wife, and then you could buy Ruger Wrangler 22 caliber single action pistols, and you would have plenty of money left over for ammunition, holsters, you could put slings on the rifles, you know, you, you have money for all that, because the rifles themselves are going to cost under $300, and the pistols are about $239, and, you know, you can get those things, um, you know, really, you're talking $900, let us just say $900 to buy the four firearms, and then you're, um, you know, you're really looking at having two to three hundred dollars left to spend, and you can buy a lot of twenty-two ammo. Even nowadays, you can still buy a lot of twenty-two ammo. May not be the top end stuff, but you can use the top end stuff for defense. You know, the the high velocity hollow points and all that, they're going to be okay. Granted, it's a twenty-two, and it is suboptimal. It's not a thirty-out six. It's not. A 5.56, it's not 7.62 by 39, it's not any of those cool defensive calibers, but it is a very good um, all-around gun that if you live out if you live out on acreage or you live uh, in an area next to acreage or next to the wilds or whatever, those will really do you very, very well. And if your primary, especially if you have the 25-round magazines, you have two of those, um, and you're working together, you know, you're suppressing targets. You you know, that is not a bad short-range deal. Now, remember remember how I feel about these guys who put together these long-range ARs. Okay, but really when you look at having to be held accountable for a shooting, it's going to be 25 yards or in. and Somebody's, you know, trying to burn down your house, or somebody's doing something bad and they're threatening your life and limb, they're probably going to be within 25 yards to do it. And two 22 caliber rifles firing that hollow point ammo is is going to be a reasonable, a reasonable response. Now, I don't really advocate that. I wouldn't choose that for myself. But you're also looking, though, what is the level of competency for a shooter? There are a lot of people who don't like loud, loud reports. They can well handle the recoil of a 5.56, no problem. They don't like the muzzle blast and the noise. A 22 does not really have that. So it's a lot less intimidating and people will go out and shoot it more. It's viable. It's Is it ideal? Certainly not. 
but it's viable. So that's that's one way you could go. Another way to go is for a single buyer is I would actually say this is this is actually just too easy. I mean, uh, if it's your first the first guns you're buying, one of the thing you're going one of the things you're going to look for is a reasonable guarantee. You want a reasonable guarantee that if it's broken or goofed up or whatever, you can get it fixed. There's going to be parts to fix it and all that. So I would say buying a Ruger AR or a Smith & Wesson M&P AR are good buys. Now, a lot of the high-end AR guys turn their nose up at that. But for a first defensive rifle, you could do a lot worse. It uses inexpensive GI magazines. It's got a got a you know can do everything that basically the other M4 style guns can do, mount as far as mounting optics and all the rest of it. Um, and you can you know you have a guarantee that if there's something wrong with it after 200 rounds, you return it to Ruger and they'll fix it. Same thing. I would go with one of their you know they make several. They're not they're not high speed. They're not they're not Delta Force certified. They're not something you'd see with you know being carried around by uh, um, SEAL Team Six. But they make some good nine millimeter pistols. You know, fifteen shot, very basic, good pistols. Yeah, they're not going to have the goofy optical sights that people are putting on it. It's not. They're not gamer guns. They're good solid defense guns. And if something goes wrong with them, Ruger will fix them. So, same thing, you go with a Smith & Wesson and Smith & Wesson M&P. I mean, you could even buy, you could even buy, be one of those people who buys one of the <laughs> long, unwanted uh, forty caliber Smith & Wesson police trade-ins, buy one of their AR rifles, uh, spend the rest of the money on just some associated gear, buy a sling, buy a, a, a nylon holster, you know, whatever quality that, between, between 15 and 50 bucks, you can buy a, a really decent, holster depending on how much you're actually going to carry the pistol and you have money left over for ammunition so there you are so those are those are some of the ways i would go unless you have a specific use it's going to be very very tough it's going to be tough to get into 762 nato if you had a use or had a reason let's say you live in alaska and you say hey you know 5522 doesn't work for me because there are bears and 5.56 doesn't work for me because there are bears. I need 7.62 NATO. And I would say get one of the, you know, there's several different manufacturers of them, but one of the G3 clones, you can still get one of those for probably under seven or 800 bucks, depending on the quality. And then, you know, you it will be expensive to put ammo in those. But magazines are still fairly cheap. You can occasionally find, you know, the, the Blem used, they're used magazines, and they might look like shit, but they'll still work. And you can get one of those, and hey, there you are. You're, you've got a 20-shot 7.62 NATO battle rifle that is proven and will do what you need it to do. Some of them even come with a rail on top. How good it is, I don't know. They come with a rail on top, so you can put on whatever kind of... Uh, optical sight, you know, if you want to put on a red dot or, or something else, you know, you can actually do that. Or later on down the road, move up to something really good like a, uh, an EOTech. You know, you can you can do that. You got that. It's already there, and it doesn't cost you any extra. So that's kind of a nice little benefit with those. And the iron sights are bad. And I think I think actually iron sights are a blessing for first time 
keep it simple kind of gun owner. I think no matter what type of weapon you get, doing doing that is a good thing. There's also a myriad of bolt-action rifle alternatives you can get. I mean, uh, um, there's a lot of good stuff out there that's, you know, Savage makes good rifles. Athlon makes good scopes. And both of those are kind of bargain basement. Yes, the high-end guys will throw up, you know, turn their nose up at it, but the stuff works. The stuff works. And, uh, you know, where you have to be careful is just to make sure that, you don't get into the accessory <laughs> the accessory wars where, oh man, well I bought the rifle and I bought the scope, but I didn't know I needed rings. I didn't know I needed a, um, you know, a mount. All these other good things, and so you know you really kind of want to minimize that. Uh, the good military rifles that have good iron sights are one way to minimize that at least initially. So that's a very very piercing question and a lot of fun. Because it, you know what you know why that's such a good question is because it forces you to think about the purpose for a gun. Now, just to own a gun, you need no other purpose than hey, I want it because you know very few people need a buffalo rifle. Very few people need that, but a lot of people like to own them because they're fun to own, they're fun to shoot, and and they have they get a certain amount of pride and and uh, satisfaction from owning something like that same thing with military rifles and and everything else so the purpose does not need to necessarily be um always this serious self-defense or, or whatever else but i use that as a way to frame it because if people just want if if you have enough money and you just want a new Colt Python, just go buy it. You don't have to have a reason to have it. You just want it, and that's reason enough. That is reason enough. But if you're going to advise or, or question, answer the question, then they have to have a need, and it has to have a stated purpose that you can then put kind of equipment sets and solutions against so that they can choose what, they, what they're looking for. So that's, that's how I would answer that one. Okay, question number two came from our friend of the podcast, who's always got some interesting stuff. And he knows where I'm going to land on this. <laughs> he, he figured this out. He figured this out before he even said it to me. But I'm, I'm, I'm on to this. I really like this question. And I'm really glad he asked it because I had not, I had not really addressed this. Because to be very blunt, I'm, I don't really consider myself a guy, like a 1911 guy. All I like is 1911s. I do like those. I consider myself a traditionalist, and I like guns that are traditional. So therefore, this question coming up will, will answer itself in the question, but I'll give you my reasoning and, and uh, my, my thinking in the answer. Okay, for automatic pistols, the double-action-slash-single-action system versus the trigger safety system which do you prefer and why and uh, i will say first of all uh, i do not care for the trigger safety i don't care for it people who will sit I, you can always catch guys in this if they have any clue of what they're talking about they'll sit there and say well your 1911 is kind of a piece of junk this guy even got a stupid grip safety on it Grip safeties are stupid. Those things went out about a hundred years ago. They haven't put a grip safety on a gun forever. And I sit there and say, well, the that little 
safety paddle you have on the trigger of your Glock or whatever whatever polymer wonder they have, I go, that's essentially a grip safety. It, it is a grip safety. It's just on a different part of the gun. And I mean, you actually have to grip the gun and put your finger and depress that, just like you have to grip a gun and depress... Yep, depress the... <laughs> the grip safety, just like you have to depress that to make the gun work. So it's the same thing, same principle, just on a different part of the gun. And really it's, you know, I, I guess mechanically you can make you can you can make all kinds of arguments that they're completely different. But I would say the things that serve the same freaking function <laughs> are are going to be in many ways very similar and not as dissimilar as people would think. So I, I, here's why I don't like the trigger safety, and I don't think it's a good system, uh, because essentially um, anything that snags or depresses that trigger safety then puts the gun in the mode where it does not need a long double action pull to actuate the firing mechanism. It just needs really the single action pull of to release the striker and go ahead. And there have been a lot of negligent discharges because people put those guns in the wrong kind of holsters. Now if you put that, if you put that, uh, those guns are really only suited for Kydex holsters, keep your finger away. I don't even think the Serpa holster, holster is a is a good choice for those kind of guns. Now for like a Beretta 92, which is the DASA one we're talking about, a Serpa holster is fine because it has that long double action pull and it actually can still have the, the safety engaged when you pull it out. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot safer gun. The DASA are much, much safer guns. Even the double action revolver could have some problems when guys were putting the trigger shoe remember the old trigger shoes uh, if you've been around a while you saw them on a lot of guys used them for target shooting just basically a big wide plate they would uh, uh, put on a trigger so that when you squeezed it, it it felt like it was a lighter trigger than it really was I mean they were they were they were dorky but people started putting them on duty guns and the problem is they were bigger they were larger than the the diameter of the trigger guard you know, where that, that metal bow, that metal is only a certain amount wide, and these things would stick out the sides of that, and therefore you had the same problem with leather holsters and any other kind of holster. It could it could literally cycle and depress the gun, cycle the uh, uh, trigger, and cycle the action of the gun if you weren't careful. And so trigger shoes went away when revolvers in competition, that kind of that uh, bullseye competition went away. You still see them every now and again, though. You can you can still find them. Um, anyway, so those are those are still out there. the The double action pull in and of itself, which is about twelve pounds, is a safety deal. The double action revolvers have no other safety other than the trigger pull, and they work just fine. But it's a heavy trigger pull, and it's a lot heavier than the trigger pull of your trigger safety Glock plastic gun it just is so that's why I come down on the uh, DASA side of that I think they're safer you realize there is a transition from between the first shot and the second and in fact you know it's not like every traditionalist thinks the DASA was a great idea 
Jeff Cooper said that they were an ingenious solution to a non-existent problem and basically saying you don't need that double action first pull on an auto pistol because if you're smart you're using a 1911 which has a thumb safety and a grip safety and so you don't need you don't need that double action pull the first time to be safe so all in all i say i like single action autos i like double action single action autos and i like the other ones the least I absolutely like them the least. But I know that friend of the podcast was thinking, <laughs> he, he already knew the answer to that before he asked it. But I'm glad he did because I've often talked about 1911s and single action style pistols put against the modern pistols because that's usually where the argument is. Nobody really, well, they do to a degree, but nobody really dogs out the uh, DASA ones like they do the 1911s. So. That's why I defend them, and that's why most of my my talking has been in the frame of 1911 versus the trigger safety. Okay. This is a question that came to me. It actually came to me over the Internet, and it's, um, it, you know, there's the tank museum in Bovington, England, where they've got every tank. They've got examples of almost everything, except for a few ultra-rare, one-of-a-kind models. But they've got everything. They've even got the first tank ever made, Little Willie. So uh, they've, they've got a great stuff. Well, what some of the content they put up is they have all kinds of people who work at the museum. Some people are, are uh, uh, celebrities and everything else. Kind of name their top five favorite tanks. I kind of expanded this and, and put a little bit of a limit on it. Uh, I say that top five armored fighting vehicles and really kind of cut it off about 1950, you know. Right, right in that area. That it doesn't really matter because I, I wasn't choosing anything really much later. But the later you go, then it's it's hard to find a top five. It's hard to find five independently made tanks nowadays, as opposed to the top five. There just aren't any. If you choose the top five tanks, and there probably aren't any left for them to uh, to be left out. Every tank would make the list. So I I looked at it and I thought, what are they? And I'll go in reverse order. From, and this is number five, lowest on the list, and that is the M22 Locust. And for those of you who don't know what it is, it's a very, very light, small tank that was developed near the end of the war. It had a small turret, a 37mm gun, a crew of three, and it was designed to be air-landed by a C-54 cargo plane. And how they, how they did this was very interesting. They would the tank is so tiny that they would just they would just drive it under the wing and an apparatus kind of like a bomb rack on a fighter bomber would come down grab the turret lift it up and hold it up next to the bottom of the wing tightly and then you would take drive the tank around without its turret up a ramp and into the c-54 and i think they can only carry two of these things and uh, c-54s of the four engine transport they're they there were a lot of them in World War II, but everybody thinks of the DC-3 and all that. But the C-54 was was uh, really the heavy lifter of the of the day, and so you could you could transport two of these tanks, and then when you landed, you land the C-54 on a on a airstrip, and you take the tank out, you drive it out the back down a ramp, and drive it under the wing, and the apparatus that was holding the turret, you could you could loosen it, and the turret would come down, and you line it up. And it would just plop it into the tank and 
off you go, you know, off you go. And you've got this little tank. Now, they never really used it that way for a couple of reasons. Number one is, well, to go back a little bit, they never used it this way. But at least it was the first attempt to give airborne forces, which whenever they were landed in World War II, had a firepower problem. And that is, they don't have anything other than handheld weapons to fight off enemy armored vehicles. And although you certainly couldn't take on a Panther or a Tiger or even a, a Panzer IV with a M22 Locust, you could take on half-tracks and a few other things, because not every armored vehicle out on the battlefield in World War II was a, a Tiger Panther. In fact, they were quite rare, and the 37mm gun was wimpy, but it, but it was better than nothing. It was a lot better than nothing, and it gave you some armor, some protection at least against small arms, and it could operate in kind of the infantry tank role, which, hey, the airborne guys are, you know, they run up against a machine gun nest or a, or a fortification. You could bring this thing up and it could it could uh you know pound that thing with a 37 millimeter gun which which you know it could do it from farther away than you could with things like piots or bazookas and stuff like that so it was really the first attempt to give the airborne forces some kind of a vehicle that that would have some sort of capability and have some sort of armor now it would never be used because you would never risk a plane like a c-54 on an airfield that you just that you just seized and in fact you would have to seize an airfield to get these things down and and really when you need these are the in, in the, some of the initial phases of an airborne battle it's not you know these things you don't need them to come in a week or two weeks later you kind of need them in on the same day which means you have to snag an airfield and the airfield has to be secure enough from enemy fighters and artillery and all that that you could risk a big asset like a C-54 to land. Though that never happened, but at least the M-22 Locust, and you can, you can look it up on Google. They're cute little things. Um, if I could own a tank, I'd own one. They would, they'd be great. Uh, but they were, they were good little tanks, and they could do that. And automotively, they were very good. Af even after the war, the British, Belgians, and Egyptians actually used them um, in combat. So, well, the Belgians didn't use them in combat, and I don't think the British did, but the Egyptians did. So they actually had some use. They they are they were a useful a useful little armored vehicle, and it was the first attempt to give airborne forces, which are traditionally light on equipment, weapons, and ammunition, to give them something that could uh, uh, help their side and give them give them some additional firepower. So number four. Number four is an easy one. It's the Sherman tank. The number four is the M4 Sherman tank. And you see, you sit there and say, well, why would the, you know, the Sherman tank has such a terrible reputation. Why would you even think that it should, that it should be on the list, much less at number four? I would say, firstly, the M4 Sherman was just a miracle of industrial production. I mean, we produced about 50,000 of these things. And there's arguments back and forth which one was more produced, the T-34 by the Russians or the M4 Sherman by the Americans, which one was. And, you know, it kind of goes back and forth. Who produced them? I think the Russians produced T-34s even kind of after the war, so who knows? So who really knows? They're, they're both about the same. In my estimation, it doesn't really matter. But the reason the Sherman is on the list as opposed to the T-34 is because the Sherman was automotively excellent. It was easy to repair. It was durable. It was reliable. If you could drive a car 
Within less than an afternoon, you could drive a Sherman tank. I mean, the T-34, they used to give people mallets and so, because they would have to beat the transmission into gear. They were notoriously exhausting and difficult to drive. The Sherman was just great. Everything about it was first rate, except in two areas. One is it originally came with a 75 millimeter gun. And they, they as the war went on, and, and against the Panzer IV, you know, the, Ger the German tank that really you fought up against in North Africa and Italy and other places, you know, it gave good service. It was, it was more than the equal of the Panzer IV, a better tank. And the other, the other area that the Sherman gets criticized for was the lack of armor. Well, it, it actually had front sloping, decent armor. For, for a tank its size, it was, it was actually decent. And what we know is that in the Korean War, when basically the T-34 was upgunned to having uh, an 85-millimeter gun and the Shermans had the high-velocity 76-millimeter gun, that the two tanks were equal. They could each destroy each other at combat ranges and longer ranges, you know, with frontal shots, everything. So it was in the Korean War, it was the equal of the T-34. That's, that's pretty good. Given all of its other advantages, uh, it's it's definitely a much better tank, and it deserves number four. Another reason another reason that the Sherman is a great tank is it really started the doctrine of the main battle tank. That essentially, the United States looked, and even though we had light tanks, that's just because we kind of had them and had them in production really found out during the war that you know one tank needs to be able to do it all and so you don't need light tanks you need kind of a medium tank and you don't need heavy tanks because they have a lot of liabilities like the Germans found out with the Tiger everybody who made a heavy tank regretted it they're hard to move on the battlefield they're hard to repair they break down a lot because they're so heavy they break things they are essentially use a lot of resources, a lot of fuel, a lot of all those kind of things. So heavy tanks, they're hard to maneuver, they're slow, they get, they're hard to transport. They have a lot of liabilities. But medium tanks can get around everywhere. And now we have the main battle tank, which is essentially a medium tank. Nobody uses heavy tanks anymore. Nobody uses light tanks anymore. It's the main battle tank. The Sherman started that. The other thing the Sherman did which uh, it was awesome, was before World War II, unless your country made tanks or you were able to purchase some, you didn't have tanks. And the first line kind of people who could make tanks were, were Russia, Germany, the United States, England, France, you know, and, and Czechoslovakia. They kind of made tanks too because they had a big weapons works there. Well, those, those are the countries that really made tanks. Now, if you're a country like Finland or you're somebody else, you have to buy second-hand tanks, and countries aren't really going to sell you their best tank. They're going to sell you their slightly older. <laughs> You're going to get the used cars, man. You, If you can't make tanks, you are in the used tank market or the obsolete tank market. Uh, the only exceptions to that were like Italy and Japan. They could manufacture tanks, but they had kind of crummy designs, so they just kind of made crummy tanks. And the Japanese didn't really use tanks very much. The Italians sort of did, but then they got knocked out of the war, so... Um, you know, but if you're Finland, hey, you have, guess what you, guess what kind of tanks they start the Winter War with? The Vickers Armstrong T5 or whatever it is. 
a 1920s design, crummy. It's not going to fight Russian tanks and survive. Then they also have the Renault F-17, you know, the first kind of the, the little the little kind of funny tank with the little traversing gun on it. It goes about five miles an hour and it's useless. You can't even train people on tanks and these things. They're just they're just useless. So, you know, you you had you you were stuck. You just had you had unless you made tanks, you had really crummy tanks and you didn't have very many of them. Because no country, especially if you could put even potentially be a threat to them, they're not going to sell you a lot of these things. So you're you're going to have you know a couple dozen at the most, and so it's it's really really pretty uh, dicey. But after the war, if you're a friend of the United States, guess what? You could say, hey, I need I need 200 Sherman tanks, and you're going to get them because we had plenty of them. I need a thousand Sherman tanks. Okay, here you go. I'm Israel. I'm kind of a new country, and I could use a use a few Shermans. They're not the greatest tank in the world, but they're better than no tanks. All of a sudden, they they get a boatload of Sherman tanks. I mean, we re-equipped Western Europe. I think, I think there are over forty post-war users of the Sherman tank, and so it was kind of tanks for everybody. It brought the tank from being a weapon that only a few advanced countries could have to basically a weapon that everybody could have. If you're a friend of the United States, you you got Sherman tanks. Whether you're in South America, Southeast Asia, Europe, wherever you are, you could get them. Some, you know, Middle East, Africa, any place. If you're a friend of the Soviet Union, you could get T-34. So the T-34 kind of did the same thing. But for the reasons that I've stated, the Sherman is number four on the list. The T-34 does not make the list. And the Sherman was absolutely, I think the last Sherman tanks came out of service in Uruguay in 2018. So how about that? Okay, the next tank is, this is really easy. It's the Mark I tank, the British Mark I tank, World War I, came out about 1915, late, late 1915, early 1916. First tank used in combat. Hey, the good part about it was they had Little Willie, which was essentially a just a big armored box on caterpillar treads and it was the proof of concept but there was no way it was designed for the battlefield it didn't mount guns or couldn't cross trenches do a lot of things the mark one was designed with the battlefield in mind it was the first tank ever designed as a fighting vehicle so it, it really was the best i know there were some french tanks out there that were kind of you know on the on the way but you know i think the mark one is the first real practical fighting tank and that's why it's number three on the list that's that's the reason and you've always seen these things they're the big rhomboid shapes and the later ones actually even kept the same shape and uh you know looked very similar it's 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 very unless you're an expert it's very difficult to tell the mark one from the mark two from the mark three from the mark four from the mark five they're they're all the kind of that same design but it started with a mark one and that's why it is number three on the list Okay, number two on the list. If you had to be a World War II tanker and you, you had to pick a tank to be on, there's only one tank that you would personally want to be on, and that is a Panther. And the Panther tank, it had a better gun, actually, than even the Tiger did, even though it was a, it was a super high-velocity 76-millimeter gun, super accurate, 
the Panther was made by craftsmen. I mean, it's like a Porsche of tanks. Now, it, it, at the beginning, it wasn't very reliable and, you know, on and on. It wasn't, it didn't have that reliability that, say, the Sherman had. But, you know, they were close enough so that they could always, you know, just drag it back and fix it. But it was the it was it was literally the Ferrari of tanks. It was the best tank. It actually, you know, along with the Sherman, made the main battle tank concept there. I mean, it was much more mobile than the heavy tanks. It could deal some serious punishment. It had good armor, good mobility, good speed, and excellent lethality. The Panther was the only tank that, if you were a tanker. And you had to choose one, knowing that your personal survival would probably <laughs> hinge on that tank. You would choose the Panther tank. It's just the best. If if you were if you were shopping for a tank, and all the World War II tanks were, were basically sitting in a used car lot, and they said, Which one which one are you gonna take? You would take the Panther. That's there's just no two ways about it. Just no two ways about it. So the Panther tank is there. The number one on my list is one that is never at the top of anyone's list. In fact, you could even argue it's not a tank, which I would say it's an armored fighting vehicle, but it's not a tank. But it looks like one. But it performs better than one. And that is, and, and the reason I made this choice is I used to be, I, I was a gunner, okay? Um, I used to be a tow missile gunner, so that's kind of an anti-tank missile. Um, gunner. Uh, I was trained on the 106 recoilless rifle, which was another kind of anti-tank gun. They're, they're both completely ridiculous, mounted on jeeps and things, but be that as it may, I am a gunner. So to me, the absolute best armored fighting vehicle to be on was the M36 Jackson. And I will tell you why. Because number one, it's got enough armor on it to protect you from small arms. And, and really small stuff like maybe 37 millimeter. You know, that kind of small stuff. But it's got a 90 millimeter gun. It had the best gun in, of anything in World War II. Even better than the Tiger's gun. So, basically, I look at it and, and, and. The thing could go like 50 miles an hour. <laughs> a Tiger tank can only go 16 miles an hour. Who do you think <laughs> is going to be able to get away from a Tiger tank? Me in a, in, you know, in a Sherman that's, that's got the 75 or maybe 76 millimeter gun that, that really can't punch through the armor of a Tiger and maybe maybe 10 miles an hour faster? Or me who has this 90 millimeter gun that can kill anything and and it can go like 50 miles an hour because it doesn't have all the stupid armor on it i don't want to be in a vehicle that the enemy is punching with their with their heaviest guns hoping that the armor doesn't give way i want to be in a vehicle that is scooting man and it is running so freaking fast that they can't even they can't track it they can't do anything they can't even follow it with their turrets it's so fast that's the gun I want to be on. Plus the fact, you know, you can say what you want to about tank warfare. Then as now, you have to get the first shot in. And the the uh, M36 had excellent sights. It had excellent tracking. It had all the good stuff. And it could, it could literally just pound at the heaviest of German tanks. So that's what I want. I want something that will take out the biggest threat 
the biggest threat and take it out hard. You know, I don't, I just don't want to blow a road wheel off it or, or something else. I want it to, you know, I want it to burn. I want the thing to be burning when I leave it. And I also want to know that if I only hit it once, it's going to hurt it bad. So to me, the M36 Jackson, which was 90 millimeter gun, lightly armored turret, lightly armored hull, kind of based on the, uh, um, kind of in the Sherman family, but, but it, was so much faster because it didn't have all that armor and I think they call it gun carriage m36 or whatever but that's the that's the numero uno pre-1950 and they did get away from tank destroyers I realized you know and that, that was all doctrine issues and plus it was all the tank that you know you, the main battle tank came in and they said everything we want an armored vehicle to do we're going to design these main battle tanks that can do that and that's that's why they've uh, that's why they went that way the you know the m60 Patton was the the perfect mbt it did everything from scout rolls to to everything and uh, however pre-1950 i would use a tank destroyer and a man i would i'm gonna get the first shot in you know i'm gonna be careful i'm gonna sneak and creep around and when i see the bad guy i'm gonna freaking pound him and then i'm gonna scoot away because that's that's what i've been trained to do and that's that's i think the best uh, the kind of the best tactic to use okay so that's it for the top five tanks number five m22 locust number four m4 sherman number three british mark one number two the Panther, and number one, the M36 Jackson. Okay, what next question. What World War II weapon small arms could be used today on the battlefields and insurgencies? Yeah, that's not a, that's not a great question because basically all of them could be, but the, the limitation of World War II weapons is that they don't mount optics. And so that's that's what I would say the biggest problem is for insurgencies and things where you don't really use a lot of optics and, and have a lot of high end equipment. Uh, most everything fine. Bolt action rifles, you know, that they're no good. But you could certainly you still find they still find in the Middle East little caches of STG 44s. Um, they still find M1 rifles. They find them in Afghanistan. They found them in Iraq. They you know they find this stuff everywhere. So. Um, yeah, they're still they're still out there. And of course, the handguns are but basically the same. You don't have the if you have a Browning high power, you have, okay, you have a thirteen round nine millimeter as opposed to a eighteen round nine millimeter. But you know that's it's it's pretty close in capability. Nineteen elevens. So yeah, pretty pretty much anything is still uh, is still you know in the game. But none of it is optimal. None of it is optimal anymore. It's all seventy five years old. So uh, time has moved on. Okay, last question is, what is the best fighting bolt-action rifle? And I take that to mean even nowadays, I guess in, in places where, you know, you can't have an AR, can't have a semi-automatic, and all the rest of it. I guess if you thought, I need a, I need a good defensive rifle, and I'm kind of limited to bolt-actions, what would I take? answer to that is really easy, too. I think Mossberg makes one. I'm sure a few other people make them, but anything that takes... An AR magazine or an AR style magazine, even if you live where they have magazine restrictions, you never know. A few magazines might come your way. But basically, any 5.56 bolt action rifle that takes an AR style magazine, that's the first thing I would go with. And I would put a really good, uh, 
zero. You know, I'd put a good, I'd put a red dot or something else on it. So that's, those are about the fighting, that's the fighting bolt action rifle. I, if you can't get that and can't get the, uh, can't get the magazines and all that, then you're kind of down into the lever action territory and we've kind of talked about those. Not a bad, not a bad place to be. Lever action is not a bad place to be. Um, you know, you can get a Marlin lever action for about 400 bucks. You could get 150 rounds of ammo for, well, for 150 bucks, you get 10 bucks. You get 200 rounds of ammo for 150 bucks. 30, 30, you know, just soft nose, 150 grain. And hey, you're off to the races, man. I would take that before I would, before I, I would like a lever action, I think, better than I would like a bolt action these days. Bolt action is fine for precision use and a few and specialized things, but um, I really think I would like a lever action if I'm, you know, just home defense, maybe defending my block with the, the neighborhood watch from the, the hooligans or something. Lever action is still hard to beat, even after all these years. Well, that's it for another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you like it is. As always, you can send me questions and leave them in the comments on Podbean or you can email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com kbmakel at aol.com yeah kind of the, lost it a little bit there with the uh, the allergies kind of kind of got me.